0: Hello and welcome to Arts Tonight. On this edition of the programme, two Dutch artists who've made their home in Ireland, visual artist Anita Gruner and singer and writer Judith Mock. As the Dutch celebrate Koningsdag, their national holiday, Arts Tonight visited two artists from the Netherlands who shared their experience as practising artists in this country since the 1980s. While the Irish poet Peter Sir recalls his experience of securing accommodation in Holland as a young language teacher during an exceptionally cold winter. I first of all visited singer and writer Judith Mock at her home along Dublin's Grand Canal where she began by telling me how she came to live in Ireland.
1: Well, I happened to marry the Irish poet Michael O'Loughlin and we lived in Amsterdam for about 14 years. And first uh, my father died and then my mother passed away. And that seemed like a good moment to Michael to move back to his own language. Uh, He also very much wanted our daughter, Sarah, to grow up in the English language so as I had very very little family left uh, he suggested we move to Ireland I was a bit in a cloud because my mother had just passed away and I thought all right we'll go to Ireland not exactly realizing what that was and what was going to happen but we went to Ireland we moved to Ireland
0: But I think you'd been coming to Ireland from roughly the mid-1980s before that with with Michael. And I wonder, what were your first impressions of this country when you you arrived?
1: Contrasting impressions, actually, because, first of all, I went uh, to Clare with Michael and it was snowing. There was a food shortage. It was incredibly cold inside the cottage, which I wasn't used to. I learned to eat potatoes and beans in tomato sauce. People had gotten all their knitted bonnets and sweaters and were driving their old bangers up and down the street because they couldn't go anywhere. It was hilarious. And then a few months later, I was, I think, the first foreigner to be accepted at the Tyrone Guthrie Centre in Anna McCarrick. And it was blazing summer, blazing sunshine, this beautiful place, the lake. um, I met writers Uh, Healy, Pat McCabe, Colm to Bean. So I was immediately sucked into that world. You know, we started going to uh, pubs and I I was a bit overcome by the fact that everybody was singing and reciting poetry, whether it was the writers or the people in the pub who, you know, just coming from Coot Hill. I have a, a weakness for clothes and designers and I was wearing a wild tufta green dress and a big scarf around my head. And everybody kept asking me if I could read their hand. So I thought, oh, hey, I'm a, I'm a witch. That's it. I'm a fortune teller. <laughs> <laughs> fortune tellers can look chic, I suppose.
0: <laughs> Was that experience of the living arts in the community very different to anything you'd experienced before?
1: Yes, there was a lot more, I, I, because my father was a, a very prominent author in Holland and had a lot of writers and artists around him. And they always used to come to our house, and so I was used to that, but it was it was a very different style. I'd say, if I may, that they were a lot wilder. There was an enormous freedom there there was obviously a lot of drinking as well which I wasn't used to at all and they went a lot further in their wildness than I'd ever experienced in other art circles let's say that. I remember pipe smoking people uh, talking about literature and making lots of jokes um, eating a lot you know I I just remember the, 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 the discussions about Germany German language but it wasn't all these people for me as a child were normal günter gras heinrich böll um, octavio paz they my parents were the first members of amnesty in holland sjergenitsin they all came to the house it was an open house a lot of russians who fled uh, Oh, from East Germany, Erich Arend. Uh, a, a lot of people came. Uh, Sachs, Nelly Sachs, you know, won Nobel Prize. They all came to our house. It was it was a vivian, a come and go of 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 writers. But open house. There was always somebody staying with us, and you would have to speak Spanish or German or whatever.
0: I just say I love the image of of grass eating strawberries.
1: Yeah, he came to the house and we had a lot of strawberries and he he ate them all before we could eat any of them and I was in an incredible rage. I said, he ate all the strawberries! <laughs> that's true. No, he... That's. I have to say, he was pretty... He had very bad table manners. <laughs> <laughs> was there
0: liberation of seeing people express themselves freely?
1: Absolutely. I was used to singing in concert halls and that was it they said oh you're a musician well come on then give us a tune i said a tune a tune without an orchestra or without a piano in a pub what there's no acoustics here and how can you ask me this kind of thing and and i thought sure why not you know actually i thought oh right i'll sing them some mozart and i thought oh they're not going to like this but they did i very quickly learned to appreciate the the incredible love of the irish for singing you know whatever you sing it doesn't matter if it's mozart they said oh that's wonderful It's just a voice they like. And that was completely new to me, yeah.
0: You mentioned that that your father was a well-known author in the Netherlands. Through his library and and his book collection, I think in many languages, had you come into contact with, with Irish books and literature at all?
1: When I met Michael, all I knew about Ireland was Joyce Moore, Singh, Beckett, uh, Yeats, of course, because one of my father's friends, Roland, the poet Roland Holst, was a friend of Yeats, actually. And he always said, I am a cardinal in Yeats Cathedral, which I remember as a, as a small child. And I mean, it was he was actually, he'd gone to Ireland, he'd met Yeats. And, but I had absolutely no idea about life in Ireland as such. Uh, my mother was from Russian background. Uh, my father was a Sephardic Jew. They had moved to, the, to Holland in the 15th century, of course, being thrown out by the Inquisition, embedded in a Germanic culture. And I must say, he very much guided me through the classics. I read French classics, Amer- American classics, you know, people like Theodore Dreiser that nobody reads anymore. And so I got a very, very solid education at home, also there were all these languages. If we couldn't find a word in one language, we just throw another word in in another language. Very much like in Nabokov. I don't know if you're familiar with Ada, for example. That's, for me, that's like a homecoming. Irish people find that very strange. They, don't, they think, oh my God, she, she speaks all these languages. I never think about it. So I, I missed the fact, well, for example, when I was in Anna McCarrick and I, I had just Robert, read Robert Musil, and and for me it's one of the most, the, the man without qualities, for me it's one of the most important books ever. And everybody went completely blank. I thought, who was this woman saying, you know, and, well, I was a very young woman, uh, what, what? And And I felt very quickly that there's no use talking about French or German or... Russian and the same in music you know as soon as I went outside the very much accepted composers uh, because I'd actually already been working with people like John Cage and uh, Bruno Maderna you know all these composers and I was very much in love with Stravinsky and so on it, it was not a thing that was talked about or to tell you the truth I also realized These things are great, but they're not necessary for an artist to develop their own work. That's of no importance whatsoever. I'd lived in Paris for years. I was educated in the south of France. And I was quite precious, I'd say, about my education, my very privileged background. And coming here, it was kind of thrown in in, in my face, and I thought wait a minute okay this is great and I have all this luggage and I should somehow translate it and talk about it with people but I shouldn't be precious about it I should use it for myself and I think I only started using it for myself coming here.
0: Your musical journey when did that begin I mean was there a very strong strain of music in your family?
1: Uh, my mother was very, very musical. She had a great voice, and she actually wanted to be on stage, but that was not done in her circles, uh, which, when I read uh, the book um, by Alex Ross about the uh, music in the 20th yes, the, the fanta- There's a photograph of Gustav Mahler in that book. That photograph was taken by my grandfather. My grandfather was responsible with Professor Razor of bringing Mahler over to Holland and having his symphonies played with the Concertgebouw Orchestra. So there was an enormous love of music and the arts, and they were patrons. But doing it yourself was apparently not done. So when my mother said, oh, I want to go on stage, they sent her off to England for years. So my father sang, you know, Yiddish songs. Folks, everybody was singing at home, and that's something I never found back until I came to Ireland. I mean, it's after dinner in restaurants. After they'd eaten, they would start singing, and the Dutch don't do that. Whereas the Irish, you know, they they do do that. He was he was a little bit difficult about uh, popular. Music and it was my mother who you know introduced us to Edith Piaf and Jacques Brel and of course we weren't more in the French atmosphere so so yes there was there was a lot of music we went to performing we went to but of course in in Holland you get a free music uh, music education uh, from age seven or after school you learn theory you learn music uh, in primary school already you you play the wooden flute. Uh, and then you or you played the piano then my music teacher told my parents that I actually should you know continue studying music so by the time i was 14 i auditioned for the royal conservatory which is ridiculously young and i went into the preparatory course and at 15 i i was in first year in in the royal conservatory in the hague yeah, so by by the time i was 20 <laughs> I had graduated. never looked back. The first person I worked with at the Hulane Hulane concerts was Dervla Collins. She actually became one of my very good friends and I'm still working with her and we played on three continents and are still playing together everywhere. I met her because the pianist who was going to work with the Argentinian mezzo-soprano and me that he fell ill and at the last moment Marvellous Dervla showed up and you know, sight read everything and was really, really excellent. And she really introduced me into the classical music world here, uh, introduced me to her brother, whom I've worked with, Finian Collins, and uh, that's why I chose that piece. And we made this Russian album, uh, which is called The R- Russian Album of Russian Music, Achmaninov, Tchaikovsky, Shostakovich and Stravinsky.
0: My Drug by Tchaikovsky, sung there by Judith Mock with Derval Collins accompanying. Judith when did you feel then that Ireland became home? Did it happen very quickly or did it did it happen over a period of years?
1: No it didn't happen very quickly to tell you the truth. I didn't know a lot of people here but I didn't have many friends. I also had to adapt to one of the things that that took me really years which is that Dutch people are terribly direct. Now, I think they're too direct. But in the the way they formulate things, they say what they mean. I'm not saying Irish people don't say what they mean, but they have a softer, more veiled way of going about expressing what they might like or what they might mean or which is the the Irish way of 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 talking you know and I had the feeling I had to translate literally what they were saying and it well it takes time to to translate uh, uh, you know people and to, to translate a language literally it's even very different from british english and also I mean english is such a vast language like dutch people you think you you think you speak english you think you know english i would and now i would say i I still don't know English, you know, it's so hard. Of course I do, but so the Irish English was very different again. So it took a good five, six years before I started to understand what was going on. And I started being like that myself. I started formulating it, my wishes or what I I wanted to do or what I wanted to work with or... Myself in such a way so I suppose that I was starting to integrate
0: I suppose part of integration inevitably for an artist is making art and one of the shows you developed with your husband the poet Michael Lockton, uh, was this Joyce show Molly Says No there's a poster that I'd love us to go and have a look at from that show
1: Yes, that's uh, for the uh, Imagine Ireland uh, Festival, that uh, Culture Ireland marvellous enterprise took over to America and they suggested I do my Molly Says No show uh, all over America. So we did it at Lincoln Centre in the Bruno Walter Hall with Dervla Collins again. That photograph is now in in the library actually at Lincoln Centre where I'm... uh, uh, portrayed as an Irish singer not a word about <laughs> about being Dutch I I am Irish I have Irish nationality and um
0: I think Joyce would approve
1: that's it like I always say I am Molly I always wanted to do a one woman show and then I thought and thought and thought who am I familiar with and then I thought well Molly of course I'm Molly you know she has a Sephardic parent like I did, L- Lunita Laredo, apparently a mother in Gibraltar. She's very much integrated into Dublin society, but she's still a foreigner. She's married to a Jew. Of course, that's not my case, but that's kind of my of background. Mm-hmm. Yes. She's a singer. So I decided to take her out of bed, and she says, she complains, oh, if I hadn't married Bloom, I could have become a diva, and I thought, all right. So I restarted a book by Zach Bowen about the musical quotes in Ulysses. And uh, I chose a repertoire for her of Mozart, Bizet, Wolf, uh, Schubert, and so on, of that time that she would have sung in recital had she not been in bed and been singing a couple of Irish tunes that she hated. I am I, tired of these marble halls. So that's the show's the show's about. Then I wanted to use some of Ulysses, uh, and it was far too expensive. So then uh, Michael suggested to write a contemporary vers- version of uh, of Molly for me, and he said we're going to call it Molly Says. No. So that's how the show came about, and, and I'm singing it in Paris on the sixteenth of June.
0: Have you taken it back to your other home at all to I've the Netherlands?
1: Ne- never done it in Holland. No, I should. Yeah, that'll happen. <laughs>
0: after the years do you miss holland do you miss that that other home at all
1: i have moments of melancholy (laughs) for fields full of tulips (laughs) you know sitting in the train and driving past these magnificent fields full of colors and it's it's only two or three weeks and it's it's so beautiful. So, so so I miss that sometimes. I, I'm i very much a mountain person. So the flat horizon in Holland always actually threw me off. I never liked that. So I don't miss that at all. I don't miss the overpopulated uh, cities. Um, no, I don't miss it that much, no.
0: What do you think Ireland has brought to you as an artist, you know what has it done for you creatively? Or
1: it's tough, very tough. I mean, you know, I don't have the the bed of friends I have uh, in in Holland or in France or in, in other places. Actually, um, you know, I would have to say it keeps me focused a lot on my work, and I hope it's been good for me. I really think that you know I've I've had to interpret myself uh, in a different way, which which I think has been good. Liberating. Also, the language, of course. You know, I wrote five books in Dutch and then went to publish a novel in English.
0: Yes, and and that that novel, and you've published a collection of poems in English as well. I I wonder about that process of of writing in the other language, you know, of writing in English and your your novel Gale, which part of which is set in Ireland. Uh, What was that like, entering another language through the prism of Mm -hmm. writing uh, as opposed to, to speaking the language?
1: Sweat and tears. <laughs> it's all hard to ease or lyrics' fault. They rang me and they asked me, and they said, well, you know, you speak English and so on, can you write a few pieces about silence and music? And I said, but I don't write in English. And said, oh, come on. You know, I, the, the, this the, the, was way, for the quiet quarter. This was, was for it. the quiet quarter. And, you know, the, I love the way... Go, in, in Holland, nothing is possible. You know, everything has to be structured and well-organized. Well Whereas in Ireland, they say, oh, come on, you know, you, your, your English is really good. Can you not give it a try? So I'm honestly up at 5 in the morning and sweating. Of course, I had a fantastic editor at home. So I said, all right, I'll give it a try. So I started writing in English. And then... I wrote a lot of stuff for the Sunday Independent, actually, about my tours, about music, uh, which was training. And then I was working on a new novel, and my husband, Michael Lochlin said, you know, I'll edit it for you, but why don't you just write it in English? And uh, I very boldly did. I thought, well, if Konrad and Nabokov can do it, I can do it. <laughs> it's, it's very, very difficult, but... There are so many words, such a rich vocabulary, there's such a rich turn of phrase in, in English, which you do not have in Dutch. Uh, so I sometimes my Dutch prose is a little, I think, convoluted and, you know, a bit Baroque, And whereas I could say things much more clearly in English. I felt more at home in the English language than, than in Dutch. To tell you the truth, I feel more at home in Ireland than in Holland. The Irish are, are great at the individualistic thing, and they, it's completely accepted. And it, they just leave you in peace. There might not be the, the enormous amount of "how are you?" questioning and you know the, the endless psychology that goes on in Germanic countries. Let's talk about it. No, let's not talk about it. Let's just leave her to her her things, which in the end is quite satisfying. You know?
0: Another song yeah. we listen to.
1: Yeah, that's a Sephardic song, and that is something that I completely owe to living here. I had not been in contact with traditional music uh, much. It was just quite a, kind of a closed world, it was a different world, and people started asking me, because they're so rooted in their Irishness here, I mean, it is an island, you know, and they are very rooted in their... In their things, and they started saying, "Well, what about songs from your background? You know, do you sing? Do you sing Sephardic songs, which are songs in Ladino, old Spanish? And they are actually not folk songs; they are romances, uh, song in the language of Cervantes." And um, I knew. A lot of these songs, you know, because I've heard them from... My father sang them and people sang them and so on. And so I started practising them and then I was very, very lucky that to meet uh, Cora Venus-Lunny. And she introduced me to Nick Roth and a number of absolutely outstanding musicians. And uh, we got together and uh, started improvising which is also something completely new the first time i they said okay which songs are you going to sing and i said these songs i knew my songs and they sat down and they said we are going from uh, this chord to that chord and then we modulate we change uh, tonality and then we are going to change tonality again here and okay let's go and i said yeah but i, I have no score classical musicians read music from their score they learned their things and ah panic and they said uh, oh and they just started playing and they taught me to improvise now i can improvise which is a huge richness also you know we worked on all these songs uh, and we play them everywhere and this is nani it's a, a lullaby which i think is one of the most beautiful Sephardic songs about uh, a baby being dead in the cradle and the father comes home but the, the baby is a symbol for Spain that they had to leave and why it says, why can't you love me? Why can't you love anybody else but yourself? Which was, in this case, Spanish Catholics loving themselves and throwing the Jews out. I think it's particularly beautiful. Uh, I really love it.
2: The first time I visit the country, it's the cold that strikes me. Ice on the canals, icicles in the trees, the pulsed drama of our breath on the air. It's minus 10, and for the first time in more than 20 years, they're holding the Tocht, the 11 cities tour. Skaters in bright suits, their bodies bent double, flash by on TV sets. Rain freezes as it hits the streets. I can feel my hair harden. The cold supplies small moments of chaos that I find exhilarating. The train system breaks down and I can't get to work. The country sits suspended in silence. I inhabit the cold more than the country itself, I think. I've moved to this small town with reluctance, having failed to find anywhere to live in the city after the lease on my flat ran out. I've found a job in the international section of a large Dutch school. My flat is the upstairs portion of a house in a quiet terrace. My hospita lives downstairs. I am her first experiment in property letting, and my tenancy seems somehow to trouble her. In one of the rooms there is a set of bookshelves, partly filled with books of hers in Dutch, alongside which I have placed my own books. My landlady surveys this scene, her face clouded with anxiety. Then she leaves the room, disappears downstairs and returns bearing a ruler. She bends to the Dutch books which occupy the lowest shelf and measures them with the ruler. There are, it seems, 50 centimetres of books. Six months later, on the eve of my departure, she returns with the ruler, measures her books and finds several centimetres unaccounted for. Where are my books? I realise that my entire residency here has been a barely tolerated act of trespass. Sometimes she forgets that she's rented her upper floor to me and bolts the front door from the inside before leaving by the back door so that when I return from my teaching I can't get in and have to while away the hours in the local library until she comes back. Today, standing in the chilly hall, she suggests a supplement to the rent to allow for the extra heat I will consume in the weeks ahead. The rent is already excessive. I will have to go. I put my clothes out on a line on the balcony but when I go to bring them in the doors have warped They're stuck solid. I watch my jeans solidified through the window and think of my washing continuing its ghostly, unprofitable tenancy long after I've left. For some reason, this fills me with joy. This year again, they're holding the Tocht. The ice master has surveyed the ice and is satisfied. Nothing since 1963, and then two years in a row, the 11 cities of Friesland lay awarded the snake Eilst, Slota, Stavora, Hindelope, Vorkum, Bolsvart, Harlinge, Franeker, Dockum and back to Leovarde again. Things have to be right. The race is a kind of miracle, much longed for, and when it happens there is a frenzy of excitement. There are strict regulations. The ice has to be at least 15 centimetres thick across the whole 200 kilometres. Every winter begins with a question. Sule will it happen? The 1963 tour was legendary. January, minus 12 degrees. Of the 9,000 or so amateur skaters, only 69 make it to the finish line. The hospitals along the route are full of wounded skaters. Rainier Papping skates the final 100 kilometers all by himself. It takes well over 20 minutes for the runner-up to finish. It has taken him 10 hours and 59 minutes. He has to be warmed up with infrared lamps with the Queen Mother Juliana repeatedly congratulating him in the tent. Mnir Papping, I have such admiration for you. The fated folk hero returns to the summer house deep in the woods where he lives with his wife because of the housing crisis. The door will barely open and when it does, it reveals the pail of water on the floor, the spuds in the pan on the gas stove, the clothes on the back of the chair, all frozen solid
0: was Irish poet Peter Asar remembering a particularly cold Dutch winter as a young language teacher living in the Netherlands. Visual artist Anita Groner has been living in Ireland since shortly after she graduated from Art College in the Netherlands. As she told me recently in her studio, music was what drew her to Ireland in the early 1980s.
3: I came on a holiday here with, uh, had an Irish boyfriend who was a musician. It was, for me, it was the wildest place, the most remote place in Europe. And I thought, yeah, why not? We'll come here for a year. My introduction to Ireland was through Irish musicians that I met in uh, the Netherlands. Gay Wood's came over with Trevor Knight and they started a band called Otto de Fay. I mean, they were wildly popular. They had come back before I came here and so part of my possibility was to sell their merchandise of their gigs. So I uh, travelled with them and I printed their logos on uh, all kinds of stuff. So we went mad and I remember Gay saying, do something different. I said, okay I'll do something different. So I printed their logo on knickers and I had, to, I had put them out on a washing line and so just to do something different that was in the Red Farnham Inn so they, they were great times and they, you know, they helped me survive
0: did, did you meet Phil Lynott as well?
3: Yeah, I had the uh, good fortune to meet him he was a very imposing figure uh, and he produced uh, their album.
0: There was a wonderful album with November, November. Right? November,
3: November, All Is Yellow, Hot, Hot, Hot.
4: November.
0: Cause it, was a, it was a very different Ireland uh, in, in the early 80s. And, and you had, I suppose, physical evidence of that.
3: Uh, yeah, because yeah, when, I, when I came here, um, you couldn't buy Italian herbs. And you had, you know, if you wanted to, because I was used to, you know, making spaghetti or something. So that was a rarity here. And so I remember... Uh, once that I brought over oregano in these white bags. At the airport here in Dublin I was stopped and then I of course put one and one together. I said, Oh yeah, young woman coming from Amsterdam, how stupid am I?
0: They weren't inclined to believe it was Oregano.
3: No, but they could smell it. I said, smell it. I said smell "Smell it's really lovely. It's an Italian herb. I can't buy it here.
0: Coming fairly directly out of college, who are the influences that you could almost name now as was helping to shape or colour your work at the time?
3: Coming from college and in college, I would have looked at a lot of uh, the new expressionism, like the Germans, the Italians, so Sandro Chia, Clemente, Immendorf, Lupertz, you name them. They're all these guys. Then coming to Ireland, I found artists like Brian McGuire, Patrick Hall, Paddy Graham, when I found a studio just walking off the road into Temple Bar, where Jenny Houghton said, yeah, I have a studio. So within, you know, a week I had a studio and uh, there were all these guys. There was Etna Jordan, Cecily Brennan. When I arrived there, there was the uh, resource centre, and uh, so we went there for lunch. Fantastic food. There was there were hand clothes shops, but most of the stuff was all closed down. Uh, I brought over Dutch artists. We did a show in Temple Bar. This this photograph in the catalogue now of Temple Bar celebrations of is thirty years? A bunch of us standing in front of the old door, and I remember saying to him, come back in 10 years, I have a good feeling about this place. And that's how it felt like to me, that was very exciting. Coming from a very structured country, like for me, Ireland was like feeling like a pioneer, like this was the new frontier. Everything was starting in the 80s. As you know, many people were leaving, young people were leaving. For me, it was a reason to stay. Uh, I was teaching at the time in what was called the College of Marketing and Design, and I remember students saying, like, why do you come here? And all of them were leaving after graduation, which was quite, I found, quite disturbing. But it was normal then in the 80s. Like, people like Paddy Graham, Brian McGuire, Patrick Hall, uh, they were uh, Mick Cullen, Edna Jordan, Cecily Brenn, they were like the Irish expressionists. That's what they were called, so...
0: Was there ever for you a feeling of displacement, of something disturbed in in your your own identity, having moved from from one place to another, and not just in, in terms of, of your art, but of something in yourself and a pull, personal pull, I suppose, with family.
3: Like the longer I stayed, the less Dutch I started to feel, yet I wasn't Irish. People would say jokingly, no, you have to, you know, you've experienced the whole suffering 700 years before you're accepted as Irish. Very, very slow process. So I did find myself for several years thinking, like, You know, who am I? And so my work did become about identity. Uh, And then years later, you realize it doesn't really matter. I mean, the world has become much smaller. In those days, it was much more expensive to fly. The influence, because there was no internet, was much smaller. So you really, you know, you really felt on an island. Yeah, like for years, that has been a subject matter in my work. Identity, displacement, First of all, it was because of a geographical displacement, but realising that, you know, it's also a psychological displacement that everybody uh, undergoes from childhood, going from childhood into adolescence, adolescence into adulthood. Um, This one here, for instance, I would start painting like on an. On a blank canvas, an empty canvas, and it would kind of evolve. So I would respond to brushstrokes, etc. But the the subject matter had very much to do. And I was, I suppose, a resemblance with work to this Dutch uh, artist called Carl Apple. And he dealt with the Cobra movement in Holland. There was a couple of artists and they dealt with these children's drawings. They were influenced by the spontaneity that children have, this directness of uh, drawing and painting. And that really appealed to me. And I think in hindsight it appealed to me that because my parents divorced when I was about 13, 14. And I remember my dad saying, you know, you're grown up. At that, you know, at that time, it suited him. In hindsight, I look back and I think, yeah, you know, there was a lot that I tried to use in my own work about that. So childhood was very important. So hence maybe the attraction for me to look at these these artists of Cobra movement. Uh, my mother gave me these drawings that I did as a child. She kept all of that stuff, and she gave them to me in the 80s. So that's how these paintings would have come about so they're kind of you know gestural there is a naivety of a uh, of the imagery like birds appear the birds that I saw coming to Ireland Uh, they come back and then this wonderment of there's one painting with all the birds there you know there's a child and a cat Looking at these mad birds (laughs) flying, you know, falling, walking, considered from the child's point of view. Only in hindsight you become aware of your past and who you are. That my context was that my. Parents had divorced, which was a big deal. That happened in the 70s. It was, uh, you know, poo-pooed in the Netherlands as much as it would have been here. So it had a huge effect on me as a young person and my brother. So consciously, unconsciously, you take that with you as a person, as an artist, and it informs you.
0: Did your family in the Netherlands understand your being away, your choice to, to make your home in another country? Did they find that difficult at all?
3: They found it very difficult. i never forget when my mother dropped me to the airport and she was crying her eyes out, thinking, would you ever see that person again? Like so many Irish people emigrated, and which is very unusual for a Dutch person to disappear out of Holland. Um, yeah, they tried for years to get me back. You know, to when I was considering, will I go back? I said, no, I'm not going back, I'm staying here. So, eventually falling in love with an Irishman, and then when, you, when I have two children, and um, things change completely because simple things like, you know, where does he, where he, she goes to school, or, you know, stuff like that.
0: The heartlands of, of belonging, of place, of identity. Uh, this, again, you, the work you talked about where you used uh, some of the letters, your mother's texts. Uh, th- we're looking at a, this poster image with some of the extracts from the letters. Describe maybe some of that. And we see the, this uh, sequencing of years and the, the build-up of, of time on it mm. through correspondence.
3: Yeah, when, when I was preparing for this exhibition, uh, deliberately I started reading stuff. And I came across this book called Abroad in Ireland... And I thought, okay, what I'm going to do is now through free association, you know, blocking out text, leaving some text that is important to me. So I started doing that, and then words would uh, stick out in the text, like freedom I brought in Ireland, uh, not forget its history or let anyone else forget. And then I would just list. the words as they came to me, like abroad, being on both sides, being abroad. I, you know, I was a stranger, an outsider in Ireland, and I became an outsider in the Netherlands. And then heartlands, you know, words that you pick up, like where is your heart? Where is your home? Like, where do you feel? you are or situate yourself you know that goes back like heartlands willowlands lowlands fatherland like the netherlands would be referred to in dutch to say uh, fatherland and ireland is the motherland which is very interesting so i just played with that ireland inspireland spiderland spiritual land either land no man's land woman's land motherland Highlands, heartlands. So it's just this kind of continuous circle of going back and forth. The work became much more about time, about this evolving of being in a place. So it's not it's not a permanent thing, but it's a continuous, it's a project, like you are a project as a person.
0: So there's an international nature to visual language that Mm. transcends our English, Dutch, Irish, these languages. But I wonder, was there ever for you a moment here where where language itself became an issue?
3: What became my best friend was a disorderly. I had to learn Irish when I got uh, appointed full-time in the College of Marketing and Design at the time, which is now Dublin Institute of Technology. I had to study Irish, which I did in Gwelyn. But then I failed the Irish oral test and uh, I said, can I make another appointment to do it again? And he said, no, you can't. You have to reapply for the job. And for that reason, I uh, met some politicians at the time who referred me to the European uh, Commission who then told me to go seek a solicitor it wasn't about the languages about the fact that I wasn't allowed to do it again beside that I never had to speak one word of Irish in my job so it's very much a symbolic test exam and now for years now nobody has to do that it's all been changed and it was also, I found, you know, I was very, uh, I suppose, ignorant about the whole thing. I was never out to question anything about the language it was about the procedure. And the whole thing got hijacked by the fact that it was a minority language. So. Uh, but then they re-advertised the job. They, I did the interview again. They appointed me again. I uh, had to do the Irish again and i set my name beautifully in irish anita nicrahor and uh i think the man just saw who i was and the rest was history so
0: I remember, I think it was in 1986, uh, Aidan Dunn, in, in reviewing your work, or talking about it, talked about you being a Dutch artist with an Irish eye. Mm-hmm. And it was only a year or two later that you were one of ten Irish artists in an exhibition that I think went to Amsterdam, mm-hmm. among other places. Then, was it in 2005, you were elected to Esthona? Mm-hmm. Was that an easy one for you? Did you feel that you were welcomed, that uh, you were regarded as a, as a peer, and that you had an equal exchange with people with Irish born artists?
3: Mm. I, I don't know whether it was so obvious, but um, I mean, it was, I mean, being elected to his daughter was certainly it was a real honour and recognition. Like before that, maybe I felt like a kind of an exotic bird or something, that you know, because there weren't that many foreign artists and there still aren't many foreign artists in Ireland. So perhaps that, you know, for that reason, I was a rarity and. I was never, like, remember, I got a bursary in the 80s from the Arts Council, which was fantastic, very, very helpful. And so that, to me, was a recognition of, yeah, you're just one of us, like. So, um, yeah, all those bits, um, like the Great Book of Ireland that I became part of, I think I be, I was part of this group of people that i was friendly with uh, patrick hall uh, brian mcguire patrick graham cecily brennan Edna jordan alice maher so ireland is very much my home now this is my base i have a family here and i have an established uh, career i have been teaching for years here in dublin but displacement as a, a concept as an idea keeps featuring in my work and it feeds into, you know, much larger issues like worldly issues. It's not localized as it was when I was much younger, like an installation I did two years ago in the RJ called State that is a much wider work around the idea of displacement
0: tipping point then was that that was a later 2010
3: yeah the show was actually called gilgamesh and um, but the book we published this book and the book itself is kind of a project became a project and i used the title tipping points because again it's about that balance of like you know you're tipping over to one side or not and like forever or you are balancing a long time of keeping equilibrium between the two places in yourself as a person but then tipping point also points to the fact like hey I'm here you know like I you know I'm in Ireland and I'm based in Ireland and I'm not Irish but I'm not Dutch either anymore but I'm an Irish-based artist I don't think it's important to even say that you're, whether you're an Irish artist or a Dutch artist, I'm Irish based. And that says plenty.
0: Anita, looking at, at the cuttings uh, here uh, f- over many decades, uh, one that stands out, catches my eye, is, is your, your father. Uh, is it Jan Gruner? Yes. Um, also a painter. He's yes. there in yeah. a studio. What kind of work did he do?
3: As he would jokingly, but underneath it very seriously, he would say to me, I'm doing the real art. <laughs> so uh, he would do landscapes and um, in a very traditional way didn 't really understand what I was about as an artist, but you know secretly he was immensely proud. I kept all the things that uh, I did and would follow uh, you know everything that I would that, that, that I did as an artist so he, he was he was very inspirational you know like follow your uh, dreams, but at the same time when I went to art college it wasn 't just art college I also had to get qualification for teaching, he said, because you will be very happy once, you know, you graduate, you'll be able to teach and support yourself. And he was very right. Like, I remember smelling the oil paint, oil paint that would never dry. I remember you had these oil paints and they would never dry. They were full of pigment, of course. Mm. Uh, and so they were the real deal in those days. And they wouldn't dry. So, but I remember the smell. It was amazing.
0: So yeah painting was almost a language around you in childhood.
3: Yeah, yeah, it was physical it had a smell and actually I do miss it, like my studio doesn't have the oil paint smell and I do love that you know, it's something like, yeah, there's you know, there's work going on here so um, yeah, that, that that was all part, that's all part of my memory, yeah.
0: And of course your mother then had kept those early drawings and paintings that you'd made, Did did she understand your your work as an artist or or did she strive maybe to understand it?
3: She strived to understand it yeah uh, and you know she would have done some drawings and then dismissed and I can't do that and all that and you know uh, but uh, she didn't understand what I was doing or and and, and, but I suppose with a lot of people like my real job was always being a lecturer but if there was an exhibition in the Netherlands, they would you know they would like to come, and, and if there was a catalogue, they'd love to have that and have a look at it. And, and so yeah, they were very proud.
0: On next week's programme as a co-production between the Abbey Theatre and the Lyric Theatre in Belfast of The Shadow of a Gunman is about to open, Arts Tonight broadcasts a programme following the staging of this production, highlighting the particular role of set, costume, lighting and sound design. Join us then. Until then, goodbye.
2: Arts Tonight is presented by Vincent Woods and produced by Cleon and the Onluon.